0: hey everybody welcome back to what would the smart party do it's me i'm baz and over there that's gaz hello mate hey how you doing buddy you right? <laughs> yeah doing really good doing really good um it's that time again isn't it uh, it seems it like is. only yesterday we were recording with people and we've got more people on as well we've got some some stuff lined up for a bit later in the show we've got some interviews we've got some bits and pieces to talk about so uh but well, what's been going on in gaztown since uh since we last spoke
1: have I mentioned Grog, mate? I'm pretty sure I've mentioned Grog, mate.
0: If you haven't, that... you should. And if you have, it's probably worth doing <laughs> I it again. again. Yeah, that was really
1: good. I want to give I want to give Dirt the Dice uh, another shout out because one thing he did do actually last weekend was take part with many others in a 24 hour RPG for charity thing for the Mind Charity, uh, and they raised uh, I can't remember exactly much it was. It's like a four figure sum anyway. It's definitely over a thousand pounds. So well done to all the guys who were involved in that. Um, good to see some good old-fashioned role-playing happening and some money for a good cause as well.
0: Yeah, I think you did mention it, but it, it bears mentioning it time and time again, doesn't it? I was so jealous watching stuff coming on Twitter about Grogmeat. It looks really good, and there's been a lot of sort of like warm, glowing stuff happening on the internet ever since about it as well. I think people have had their, their gaming well and truly stoked by the poker of Gaz GMing stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's always nice. <laughs> I suppose the other thing we should mention is Dragon Meats coming up in uh, less than two weeks at the time of recording. Is It'll it? be even sooner by the time this comes out, I think. Yeah, definitely. Two First weeks? of December. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> less than, who knows, by the time we've done the edit, it might be less than one week. But yes. <laughs> Everybody should come along, uh, certainly for 11 o'clock seminars, because myself and you with the good friends of Jackson Elias are going to be doing uh, a brilliant uh, dance-off, another conversation amongst ourselves with an agile question about D&D, so I uh, definitely need some support off uh, all our little smart posse and anyone else who's out there who fancies a bit of a chat.
0: Yeah, so we did this a few years ago, didn't we? We had a, we booked out a seminar room at Dragon Meet. Well, they invited us, let's be honest, you know, and... Uh... We had such a good time a few years back talking about whether there was too much Cthulhu in gaming or not, which I don't think we ever fully, truly settled. That one's we, still to be discussed. We definitely
1: won the actual debate, but the, the votes were against us.
0: Easily, yeah. So we've got the same impartial
1: chairman this time round, I think? Yes, indeed we have. <laughs> that the Paul well Fricker, <laughs> Also one of the Jackson Lights podcast. But I'm sure this time, as in our second referendum, he'll definitely be impartial.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll, we'll call it the people's vote, this one. So if you're in the smart posse or not, rock on up and get the answer that we should have got the first time round. It's a couple of years further down the line and we all know a lot more about it than we used to. So we're debating, are all other role-playing games essentially just pale imitations of D&D? And I don't think we've actually told anyone what side of the debate we're landing on. So you'll have to come and find out, I think, on the day.
1: Yeah, just vote for us, whichever side it is, because we're yeah. right.
0: Yes, Exactly exactly so that's 11 o'clock in a seminar room at Dragon Meat and you know come and say hi uh, before after during even we don't mind at all I mean one of the things I'm really looking forward to at Dragon Meet is catching up with some of our patrons and some of our backers and, and anyone who listens to the show it'd be really really nice to put names to faces and shake a few hands
1: yeah, definitely. And a big shout-out to Sean Souter, I hope I pronounced his second name right, one of our new patrons. And also a good friend of the show, Guy Milner, who ran Twilight 2000 for me. He's also one of our new patrons, so thanks a lot, Guy. It's people like you and our other glorious patrons that keep us on the air, pay for new batteries for my possible recording device and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, cheers, fellas. It's much appreciated. Thank you very much.
2: The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just to head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable hole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new smart party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the smart party at Patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers!
1: So there's been a bit of um, sad news as well, hasn't there, Baz? Uh, over the last few days, that uh, one of the greats. Uh, Certainly from our old era, back in the day, Carl Sargent's passed away.
0: Yeah, it's uh, so sad to see that when it came through, the news came through on the internet as well. Um, yeah, Carl Sargent, for me, I was a massive fan of Carl Sargent's work, and, and he did an awful lot of stuff. Not recently, you know, an awful lot of stuff for the hobby back in the day of the 90s and into the 2000s as well. And it's another gaming name from my past, which is sadly no longer with us, and that seems to be happening all more often these days. Um Carl Sargent was one of those authors that I would just buy their work if I saw his name on it. It was always going to be good quality. And he dipped his toes into lots of different things, but if you ever played Warhammer back in the day, if you ever played Power Behind the Throne, which I I maintain is possibly the best published scenario ever written, an absolute beast to play, but, I mean, it's so ambitious and just such a beautiful piece of work. He wrote for Shadowrun. He did loads of stuff for D&D and Greyhawks especially, and I just remember his stuff as being really clear really imaginative really inspirational you couldn't you couldn't not want to run it and even if you didn't run it it was a really good read as well so you know he's one of the greats of of british gaming as far as i'm concerned and and if you see his name on a product pick it up you will not regret the read um and i think that the, the hobby lost him a little while ago uh but now you know my sympathies and condolences to his friends and family as well i mean it'd be sorely missed um, whenever I play games,
1: yeah, so all I can do is echo your comments. You know, he wrote for Earth Dawn as well, and some of the yeah. the great games used to play back in the day. Yeah, um, but yes, uh, a, a great talent uh, and a sad loss to us all.
0: Yeah, and it it just reminds me sometimes that you know there are very few names in the hobby these days which I I will buy sight unseen, but there are still a few, uh, and there are there are people who consistently put out really really good work, and I think. I think you and I, Gaz, we we try our hardest to get as many people onto interview as we can because we just don't you know don't want to miss our opportunities when we can. So um, yeah. we've got another great interview lined up for the, for this episode. Uh, one I really enjoyed was we're, we're speaking to Gareth Ryder Hanran.
1: Yeah, he's uh, done all kinds of things actually. Most recently, it's Gumshoe that he's involved with, but the excellent Dracula Dossier is probably uh, one of the best known ones out of that. But he's also written for the One Ring, uh, Laundry Files, Traveler other monkey stuff, Paranoia even, all kinds of stuff. And he's writing novels, and he's done some other work like that. I mean, really prolific writer. And he's, he's like you said about uh, Carl a few months ago, he's one of those people where if you see he's written an adventure, uh, it's well worth just sticking your dollars down to, to get it anyway because you know it's going to be good quality.
0: Yeah, for my money, one of the, the best writers there has is in RPGs right now and has been for some time. Uh, and he's written everything, hasn't he? Um, loads of 13 pages as well. Oh, yeah. about that. Yeah, so cracky stuff. Uh, and what a gentleman as well. We had a really, really interesting conversation uh, with Gar. And um, as you're about to find out, he, he makes complicated things sound very, very easy, which is kind of good <laughs> yeah. for us and our listeners, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's,
1: I almost feel embarrassed for all the worrying over writing scenarios or game stuff when he just... With little nuggets, made everything really crystal clear in a really short amount of time, which is basically how he writes his scenarios as well. He gives gems all they need, really uh, with really great clarity uh, and efficiency. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, uh, yeah, we, we learned from the master over the course of this interview, and, and I hope that you guys enjoy it too. Um, and we'll see you on the other side of this, and hopefully at Dragon
1: Meet. Roll VT.
2: Howdy, smart party fans. Thanks to the amazing backing of our loyal patrons, and your first issue of Smart Scene is now available to download at DriveThruRPG. For the ridiculously low price of a mere $3, it can be nestling within your hard drive in seconds. Free to the advice of Trad in Indiana. Wax nostalgic with the 90s. Chortle as you play Con Bingo. Just type smart scene into the search bar over at Dry Years from now, you'll be able to say with confidence, I like their early stuff the best. Stay smart now.
1: So here we are. We've got Gar on the line, a prolific writer, it's fair to say, uh, and one we've been looking forward to getting on. How are you doing,
3: Gar? Not too bad. It's been a, a busy day, but uh, I'm surviving.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like the conversation I was having with Baz earlier on.
0: It does a little bit, yeah. We're, <laughs> we're all looking at a cup of cocoa, probably, and thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice to get a nice early night? But no, yeah. let's talk about elf games instead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you're a prolific writer, I think it's fair to say. Uh, I've written all kinds of things. God, I mean, Did you ever envisage when you were a wee boy that this is what you'd be doing for a living, writing about pretend elf games?
3: Yes, ish. I mean, I, I had a sort of clever, sensible plan where I would go to college, get a degree in computer science, and then do, like, you know, real-world programming and, like, get a, have a real job. And then I thought, like, on the side, I'd, like, you know, write a little bit. And that worked for about 18 months. I had my terribly, terribly boring real job and a small bit of freelancing. And then the company I was working for downsized pretty much everyone and In I front. said I've got three months like rent saved up uh, I'll try this freelancing thing yeah it seems to it's kept working so far
1: <laughs> so while you're riding the bike you'll just keep riding it until you fall off I think that's a good
3: pretty plan. much yeah it maybe be a sudden sharp uh, stop at the end but so um
1: where do you get inspiration from I think that's probably a it's quite a broad question to start with but I'm I've written a little bit but as written a little bit Um, But we needed a bit of a run-up at it, to be fair. And it seems like if you're doing this as a living, you've got to just constantly be getting things popping into your head all the time to
3: write about, right? Well, part of it is, like, you know, if you don't write, you don't eat. Like, you know... (laughs) 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 That is an excellent
1: prompt, like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) How hungry
3: am I? Exactly. (laughs) Fill this page or else. Uh, But, I mean, other than that, it's just sort of consuming... Whatever comes to hand, and like, sort of keep keep it in your head, and having a, sort of like, a like notebook full of ideas, and a sort of running tally of things I want to maybe do or bring into something. Like there's there's one book I read like you know, like 15 years ago, like se- like Seven Wonders of the Victorian Worlds. Like you know, seven different pieces of fantastic Victorian engineering, and I have brought bits of that book into about like you know, 20 different role playing games, hmm. just because like you know. Oh, that sounds interesting, and it sort of crops up again and again and again.
1: And apart from just like, uh, I would say mundane ideas, although everything's fantastically when you when you're writing for role playing and stuff like that, you have some pretty um, out there stuff. So, like one of your thirteenth age games was a you know living dungeons that come out and try and hunt you rather than you <laughs> hunting the dungeon. Like that seems a little bit off the wall. I mean, it's a brilliant idea, and when you hear it, you think, why has nobody else done that before? But then equally, it does seem like quite a madcap idea. Is that? So I will- come on.
3: I would almost argue with that. I mean, oh, the, go on, feel free. well, the, the elevator pitch of that was it's Moby Dick as a dungeon. Right, got gotcha. <laughs> But if you take it from a very sort of campaign uh, orientation, like you, know, how do you make a campaign work? Then you've like you, know, you've got your players. They have things they care about. Either you can like you, know, uh, have them leave the things they care about and go off adventuring, or you can do the adventure come to them and then you've got the players hating the GM's NPC which is always a fantastic thing because if the players hate the bad guy, in this case the dungeon they will be far more interested in going out and killing it.
1: With your ideas that, that's interesting then so do you break things down into basic story ideas and then layer things up on top of it? Is that a way of constructing things for scenario writing?
3: What I normally do with the scenario is start off with sort of like you know grand high concept cool idea And then start sort of applying fairly basic story structure. Because I mean, role-playing games in particular have to be relatively simple, and there are a couple of very strong constraints on them. Like you know, whatever story you do has to work with like you know, three to six players. It has to have enough sort of choke points to bring the story back in, so that so you can like fit it in one book. Because like you know, if the story can go in any direction, then it's going to be like a massive campaign, or at least doing some sort of hex crawly thing in which case it's a whole other uh, set of design tools sure Um, the information has to be sort of simple and clear enough that a GM can digest it and pass it on to the players you have to have like at least one fight per session really in most games (laughs) I mean there are like you know a couple of very clear constraints on a role playing game and then you just sort of like you make sure they all fit and then add some gloss do a bit of historical research Turn art notes and you're done that's (laughs) a very cynical way of looking at the whole thing isn't it (laughs) (laughs) if only it was that easy
0: Um, when does the uh, where do you put uh, the system into it Gar do you you have a how much does your adventure design matter for the system that you're writing it for so for example you know Eyes of the Stone Thief is for 13th Age which is close to D&D but if you were would you be able to write that for Warhammer Fantasy would it change what you do in the way you write how does the system come into it
3: well, um, most of the adventures I do at the moment are Gumshoe based and Gumshoe sure. is has a very sort of strict way of constructing adventure or not strict but like a sort of formulaic or form, for, formulated way of constructing adventures mm-hmm. um, to, to translate a 30th age adventure into Warhammer I mean, you, you, first the set of assumptions are very different in, mm. certainly in uh 30th age you're, you're assumed to be like you know, big damn heroes like you know, like, you. Know, slay dragons and save the world Warhammer, at least the versions I'm more familiar with which is basically first and second ed you're much more sort of like, you know, rat catchers and mm-hmm. neer duels, who'll be running away from the dungeon as opposed to trying to slay it That's true, um, yeah. I mean, so, so not, not every adventure will work in every system
0: hmm. I suppose a better example would be thinking about Gumshoe, which is very much an investigation yeah. game, now I mean You know, Gumshoe has been preceded by lots of investigation games, Call of Cthulhu, notably. Obviously, you know. But when you're writing for Gumshoe, you've mentioned there's there's kind of a structure that goes with that system. I just wonder if you if you have an investigation idea and then make that into a Gumshoe game, or do you think Gumshoe and that gives you your scenario?
3: At this point, I almost think Gumshoe for anything other than a (laughs) combat-heavy game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But no, I mean the system will somewhat affect the structure of it but the genre is generally a more sort of like you know, telling thing mm. like a, 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 a an investigative stereo, you can do in a like gumshoe and you can do the same thing called Cthulhu and while the presentation will be a bit different the format of the information will be quite similar Yeah, because you're still trying to get the same stuff to the GM and a lot of venture is basically working out what the important things are the GM needs to know and presenting them in a sensible fashion. Mm. So for like a sort of a combat heavy D D scenario, the key things are basically like relative position of the players, what monsters are there, what quirky things there are in the combat, um, what great effects the combat might have. Whereas with a mystery game it's about like, you know, what clues are available, what order what order should they be found in what investigative bits might the characters do? And like you know, what, what does the GM need to know to get onto the next scene?
1: It's really interesting that I think it's probably advice that other people need to hear as well. The way you talk about um, writing scenarios is very much like, what does my GM need to know to run this game? What's important to them? And I think that's lost in certainly a lot of the scenarios I've read. Is There's a lot of, you know, 1,500 years ago this thing happened and you're like, I, why would I care? And the way you are talking is very much like a manual for running a game. It's well, like, yeah, here you are, yeah, GM. This is what you need.
3: Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having 1,500 years ago, here's what happened. But that needs to be off in its own section at the start We can clearly see, right, I do I need to read this I know to do the context of the adventure but it, like you know, if I am flipping through it in the middle of a game that's not what I need right now yes um, yeah, yeah. I, start, I started off writing scenarios for conventions which I think was a fantastic sort of training ground because they're like you know, the GM so, uh, Irish cons still do and certainly back when I was doing this like uh very regularly had a weird system based on the old RPGA system mm-hmm. where basically one person would write the adventure and then you'd have like you know 5, 10, 20 tables running the same scenario at the same time sort yeah, to of to tournament yeah. style and because you would often be sort of like recruiting GMs literally 5 minutes before the game started <laughs> the scenarios had to be formatted in such a way that you could hand this like you know 20 page detailed Call through investigation to some random stranger you just dragged out of the bar and they can read it, assimilate it and run it on the spot. So it gets sort of very good at sort of like, you know, formatting and structuring the way the information flows to the GM and from the GM to the players.
0: That's nuts. That only ever happens in Ireland, I think, doesn't it? I think mm. it's still true at GaleCon and things like that. Uh
3: pretty much. I mean I'm yeah. sure there are other cons that do it, but there are possibly more
0: sensible yeah. <laughs> ways to handle things well I mean it definitely gives you that grounding because you're forced to you're forced to write down for other people your own mad notes exactly Whereas yeah when you're doing your own con games you can do it off well post-it notes or nothing <laughs> indeed <laughs> and often do
1: <laughs> so what's
0: that yeah. that's like 10-20,000 words of writing out a scenario for somebody else at a con game is it?
3: I don't know yeah but 10,000 words for a, lo- for, a lo- for a longish one but wow
0: my dissertation wasn't
3: that <laughs> I did look at going to all the
1: Irish cons once and I wanted to run a couple of games and they are like sure yeah just submit them in this format I was like what are you talking about and they wanted two dissertations off me before I could run a game It's like you guys are mad that's just not happening <laughs> but apparently it's the way
3: it used to be the way certainly I think they are sort of moving towards a more accessible format now but <laughs> yeah. damn it I will continue to write my dissertations for cons
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. So, do you find things like um, gumshoes, you say, has got a certain uh, pattern to it? When you're writing, do you, do you find you, you sort of like challenge yourself into thinking of different things you can do with that format to keep yourself interested, or is it quite is it a mix of that and probably just like paying the bills and eating, like you say, you can just you know, you can write to a certain temper and that's all fine.
3: It depends on the story, like if the or the the concept for the, for the adventure, like you know. If it's a fairly sort of like simple, direct, like you know, you are you are hired to solve this mystery. Here's the here's the initial hook. Off you go. Then I mean I mean I'll I might like you know, do a little variation to keep myself amused. But there, it's a simple adventure, and you don't want to basically confuse the GM. Mm. Because one thing I always conscious of, like I've written, like you know, God knows how many scenarios at this point. So I'm sort of like j- jaded and cynical. And yeah. want to do like you know wacky innovative things, but the average GM who just picks like picks one book up out of a whole line hasn't like you know seen like that past thirty scenarios and isn't necessarily looking for something strange innovative. But at other times, yeah, we will sort of push the uh, the way the scenario is designed or how it's presented to the players. Like you can start off with like you know the players being um, what was a good example like I have one scenario which was rewritten re- at some point where there's one player character and everyone else is playing basically voices in their head <laughs> nice so how do you get
1: from a, a regular scenario to writing something like the Dracula dossier with Ken Haidt because that's got to be like a whole different way of writing hasn't it
3: oh completely uh, I mean that was like two years pretty much of our lives spent googling stuff the former Dracula dossier when Ken wrote this lengthy outline, and then it was a question of basically break it down into niche chunks, like you know, individual NPCs, individual locations, and having enough connections between them that you can get from any point in the scenario to any other point, just by basically following following the clues. Right. Yeah. There. So the trick was having a couple of. Semi unstated overarching stories in mind, like you know I, I can't predict how, you, how exactly your campaign will go, but it'll probably go in one of these ways mm. and writing support for those uh, adventure sort of molds into it so like you know if you go down the path of investigating Edom the like you know, secret branch of mi5 or MI6, we have all these sort of like seeds built into it, and you can follow those if you go straight for Dracula and you want a sort of horror, horror path then we'll sort of write these sections you'll probably come on to um, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of scenario writing is basically anticipating how 80 percent of groups will play through a scenario mm, right. and writing most of it to support that and then having other branches to support the 10% of groups that go off on a different track <laughs> and then a sort of like you know, neat paragraph for the 5% of groups who completely unexpected where you go write GM you're pretty much on your own. Here's <laughs> Here are some ways you can get back to the expected track. But if the players go off, enjoy, follow them. <laughs> yeah.
0: How enjoy. do you strike that balance car when you're when you're writing an adventure for other people, you, you, you don't know who's gonna be running it, do you? You have no idea. And you, no. you kinda of have to cater for everyone. But I guess it's it must be a big temptation to
3: overwrite these things. Um it depends. I'm quite lazy, so that really comes that helps. Up. <laughs> <laughs> as you can tell from the size of your books. <laughs> but no, I mean most groups will r- will roughly conform to like you. Know, that or eighty percent. Like you, know, hmm. most players will roughly play through an adventure as it's written. Like you, if you give them an obvious plot hook, they will follow that. Yeah, they won't go that far off piece. And if you basically have enough. Branches that will lead back to that central core, you're fine. And yeah. there's, there's another, another like a of ten percent of groups will go off on some tangent that you can pull back in. They'll either follow some odd clue or they'll approach it in, in a different way. And that, but I mean, well, roleplay games do offer immense freedom to the players. Like you can do anything. There's still in most scenarios a sort of expected list of things you will do. Mm-hmm. Like, if you go to the dungeon, you're going to like go down to the dungeon and explore it. Yeah. You're not going to basically go back to town and st- open open a, like, a fishmonger's.
0: <laughs> and if you do, you're not expecting the, the writer of the scenario to have <laughs> given you a little sidebar on that. Exactly. <laughs> I want my money back. It didn't tell me how to do that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, do you have any, or did you have any trepidation when when something like Dracula Dashe came out that? Whether it would work or not, I did you just have comfort that there's enough seeds in there that any half decent group can just pick it up and get something out of it.
3: Well, fortunately, we had sort the path blazed by Robin Laws's Armitage Files, so we sort True, of knew yeah. that format would work. Also, we, 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 we had such fun writing it that I sort of figured it had to work. Because if like, you, know, if we were enjoying the process that much, just like you know looking these things up, then it would surely be almost as much fun to have them all pre-done for you I used to read them and <laughs> grab onto them and the other thing getting back, getting back to earlier once we had like these like you know, all these like NPCs and so forth they just was, like sort of plugging on fairly simple like story mechanic or story uh, formats to them like you know here's this NPC we've researched he's like you know this um, British politician we've listed all his collections to various secret groups we've got like his three different Interpretations: he could be a servant of Dracula, he could be innocent, he could be potentially on your side. And for each of those, you then have a f- fairly clear, like you, if he is on your side, then he needs help with this thing. It is a, like, go and investigate this and get the information he needs. If he is an agent of Dracula, here's how he will um, hurt the players. That is a very simple, you are being attacked by British security forces, you've got to run away. I mean, see, whenever you write, something make sure that there is a playable element to it.
0: That's yeah. solid advice. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, it really is, but it, but it needs saying out loud sometimes. I think, doesn't
3: it? <laughs> well, it, it's so it's so easy for players to sort of get lost and like you know, be chasing after these complicated, wonderfully intriguing ideas to the GM. But yes. you have to that's like you know, what will the players do with it?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I think. I think there's a, you're trying to serve a lot of masters when you're writing for role-playing audiences anyway and and some of that audience is just people who want to read your stuff and it may never get played but but you can fall into the trap of reading something that's good fun to look at but not much fun to engage with, if that makes sense Oh yeah,
3: exactly, yeah, yeah. You always have to ask, what, what, what do the players do with this, what actually happens at the table mm. how does mm. this change from like or how does this translate from cool ideas on the page into actual play
0: Yeah so when you were um, when you were sort of a, not a full time professional writer who who were the uh, who were the authors you looked out for who were your influences and heroes?
3: Trying to think, back in the day, I I, I still fanboy Ash Height, even though he's quite a good friend at this point. Um, I spent years playing uh, Aaron Alston's was Aaron Alston was the D and D rule encyclopedia. Yes, yeah, yeah, and um, reading Bruce Hurd's stuff on Mystra in Dragon yeah. Magazine.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, well, who else was a big influence? Um, I spent a lot of time playing Jeff Barbers Blue Planet as well. Really? Back uh, back uh, right. Yeah, yeah, we're fans. Indeed, it's great. They should they should bring it back and do it properly. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, the, that's the second <laughs> the thing everyone heart. says about Blue Planet. <laughs> <Is it>? <laughs> <laughs> and that was actually my first freelancing was doing a Blue Planet adventure. Oh, okay. Which yeah. one was that? Remind me. Uh, it was in Natural Selection, which was the wilderness book. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, yeah. there's uh, something about like survivalists and a crashed shuttle in the back of one of that book. Those books, which I did mm-hmm. Along mm-hmm. with Goby and Rollins. Who else was I majorly into? I have weird emotional associations with all the old MERP stuff because that's what like the, the where you first started role playing. Okay. So that now. was where
0: you cut your teeth, was it? On the old like the Angus McBride covers, the little modules and stuff. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. But that was like yeah. before,
3: before I had a gaming group. was sort of grabbing those and going, "Ooh,
0: one day
1: maybe." <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, that leads us nicely
1: into the One Ring, actually. So, how's it? How's it different to write for a, a license like that? Because I guess when you're making your own stuff up, you can you pretty much got like a broad brush to do whatever you want. But if you're trying to write something that's going to fit within. A genre such as a, a body of literature or something like that, then presumably that gives you some extra constraints.
3: Definitely, I mean, especially with the One Ring and Lord of the Rings, because like I, I was like a, a Tolkien fan before, before I was ever a gamer. So, right, yeah, writing in Middle Earth was like sort of being invited to like, you know, <laughs> to 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 make pottery in a china shop, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um where you have to be very very sort of careful and respectful and was quite intimidating in a lot of ways of terror um, just sort of the sort of psychic weight of it yeah I mean working in a licensed game the trick there is you want to remind the audience of the bits of the license they love while still presenting new elements or bits of it in a new way so for example in was The Adventures of the One Ring I'd always make sure that whatever whatever I put in, I could somehow tie back to a scene or reference or episode in Tolkien, even if the connection was not written in the scenario or wouldn't even like make sense to anyone else. I still sort of like anchor each bit of it in the books, so like um, I, I wouldn't make up anything that I couldn't convinced myself I had derived from Tolkien in some way.
1: Right. Yeah, I found it quite. odd, One or two of the two, the bits from I think it was another author actually, but there's a bit one of the early adventures that's kind of like, oh, and if you're lucky, you might see Radagast the Brown. And it's like, I don't, I don't think my players are going to be particularly excited that I tell them their character to see Radagast <laughs> no, you know, in the background or something, some girls. It's like that doesn't sound like the right way of approaching this. So I was quite glad when you got involved and started writing some proper inverted commas scenarios, if you know what I mean, because it's. You could definitely feel the threads of talking for it, but it was also like really good gameable content, which is the sort of stuff you talked about earlier about making it yeah. something GMs can use and you know players can get hold of. Yeah, you know, there's, then
3: there's the whole sort of um, tension there between like, you know, the, sort of, like, you know, the basic gameable content you talked about earlier and staying true to the license, because like you know the license will put on its own set of restrictions and expectations. So, for example, like you, know, a combat a day definitely true in most fantasy games in the one ring a bit trickier there actually isn't that much fight, there isn't that much fighting in the books mm-hmm. and it tends to be sort of clustered in particular locations like you, you can't have a combat a day in the shire mm-hmm. because like, you know, they're just or even like near the shire you can't like you know, be wandering around Bree and they're always like you know wandering wolves or goblins because Bree's a safe place Yeah. so you have to have other things that will, t- that will other so like you know conflicts or exciting elements Uh, to take the place
1: yeah I think it's a pretty I really like the system where it's sort of like three or four mini systems really chucked in there but I I like the way that um, like the journeys work and stuff like that I remember the first time I ran something where the players had to go through or the character had to go through Merkwood they're like okay fine and if it's D&D or something you might have a wandering monster and that's it but yeah. you go through the journey with characters and go through Mertwood and a players straight afterwards are going we're never going through there again I don't get how long it takes us to walk around it. we're not going in that was horrific you know. which is exactly the sort of feeling you want from Mertwood right?
3: Yeah there's the, a the fascinating emotional quality to, to, like, you know, to mechanics which you only see in role playing games It's like if I say like you the monster bursts out of you and close your face you go ah if I say the monster bursts out of you and close your face that's forty damage. <laughs> to a non-gamer, that's meaningless. To a gamer, yeah. you're going, that's half my hit points there." <laughs> exactly. So, like, so, like you know, in one ring, almost the physical act of rolling. I mean, there is quite a bit of rolling in the journey mechanics. There is, yeah. yeah. But that is actually has an emotional quality. If you sort of treat each if you if you let each dice roll sort of emphasis and say, like, you know, don't just like you. Know, Roll like the um, travel, like make, make make ten make ten travel roles, but like you know, treat each of them as a separate roll. Just the physical act of picking up the dice, rolling, and the numbers is wearing and reflects the journey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is.
0: Yeah, exhausted from the number of dice you got to carry. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, a lot of little bits of like I have Sauron as well and stuff like that because they start adding up and they just you get the feeling they have being watched on. They know something bad's coming and exactly, you know, yeah. as a player and a character, you're kind of starting to dread what's going to happen around the next corner, sort of thing. So it's really clever.
3: Yeah, like, I mean, I did this, um, I did Primeval for Cubicle Seven based on yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the and, TV show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the one thing that was really relevant there was that animals had this threat mechanic, where basically they get threat points. And once they start cross certain the threshold they would they fight or flee. So you could have yeah. this dinosaur like roaring at you. And every time it roared, it would get a threat point. And the GM instructions sort of stacked them up in front of the players. So you had this sort of like visual representation of the creature getting angry and angrier. <laughs> and the hope there, the the cool. mechanics would sort of reinforce that to the players. You could like you you'd see the monster getting sort of mechanically closer and closer and angrier and angrier. Yeah, yeah. I love I love
0: that bit where mechanics mechanics make the story happen, story makes the mechanics happen, they feed off of each other. Yeah. And it stops you it, it stops you just being a participant in a an audio drama, which is great, but it's not a game. Indeed. So Girl, we talked about um you talked about like having the, the psychic weight of having to deal with the <laughs> the Tolkien estate <laughs> yeah. on your shoulders. And and there there must have been some psychic weight attached to the Dracula dossier as well and, and the expectation of something massive like the Eyes of the Stone Thief campaign. I mean do you ever do anything for fun or is it all like you know this is this is the biggest milestone of my writing career you must swallow hard sometimes when you take on these briefs
3: Well, it, it, it's always fun I mean it's a, it's a ridiculous <laughs> job where you can like you spend half a day researching the intricacies of like you European garlic smuggling which is a real thing <laughs> <Is> it? <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm um, guessing France is involved somewhere <laughs> Was Bulgaria? There's a side part of Dracula <laughs> <velocity is> somewhere.
1: I'm going to have to read up on that
0: now.
3: <laughs> That's the crazy thing. <laughs> um, or like, or like stone Thief just like you're making up like wacky magic items and monsters and so forth. No, I mean, active writing is usually fun, especially in role-playing games or for role-playing games material, because it's it's off. I I I, I find it easier to write than fiction, really, because there's slightly less pressure in that. You know the audience is going to have it interpreted by a GM, so mm-hmm. you're right to support the GM, and so the the a chunk of the weight is on the G, is sort of shared with the GM. Yeah. Whereas if it, with fiction, you're right there with the reader, so to speak. But I mean, for, for the difference between a large and a small project is, at this point, just the the, the, the time involved. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, when it was starting out. Certainly, like, you know, I'd be more scared of a big book than a small book because I'd be afraid like, you know, that I would take a wrong turning and mess up the structure of the book. Sure. But at yeah. this point, I'm either ar- <laughs> experienced enough or arrogant enough to guess that I can get I can get a book <laughs> right. <laughs> no,
0: that's a fair point. What's been your favourite favorite thing you've done then? What's been your favourite thing to work on? or And is that different to the, fav- the favourite thing that eventually left the publishing house? Because at you, you, your stage you don't see all of it packaged and all the rest of it I guess
3: oh I don't know I mean, I mean the best experience of work was probably Dracula dossier because I was working with friends for a long mm. time Um, I I really like Stone Thief I loved doing the Mythos dossiers for the laundry because that was one of the first books where it was like my idea from the very start and I then sort of transmitted to a large group of wonderful freelancers who Mm. who like you know, match that vision. Then there's like weird stuff like the book The planes which did for Mongoose like twenty years ago <laughs> yeah. was the first book where it was basically just like, you know, write whatever you want. It's like, okay then. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, you know Frantic joyous typing for two months. As just yeah. made up wacky D and D planes.
0: <laughs> I
3: mean do you have any memory of the
0: quintessential Paladin two or whatever it was you <laughs> Churned out back then.
3: <laughs> uh, weirdly, I do mainly, be- <laughs> mainly because I'm irritated that I did up a set of mechanics for the Paladins oath. Right. And at the time, I was thinking, "This is brilliant. This will revolutionise how people play Paladins. It will put an end to endless debates online about like what about morality in Paladins." And it sort of never got really noticed. Never got a huge amounts traction. <laughs> What's <laughs> lying there? Someday someone will discover
1: discovers. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe after yeah. people listen to this podcast, it will get a resurgence. Who knows?
3: Exactly, yes. Undiscovered gem.
0: Well, you know, we talking about writing for for the Irish cons yeah. was a great apprenticeship. I mean, you worked for Mongoose. I mean, I mean those that was an apprenticeship, wasn't it? Into professional writing, I presume. How was your time at Mongoose?
3: Mongoose. I mean, I still do the occasional bit of work for Mongoose. I did some travel fiction there. Uh, last month but I mean the, the days of the D20 boom were very very strange in retrospect just the sheer amount of stuff that was coming out mm. all on the same lines and I, I, I mean I'm sorry out of touch with the whole 5E situation so I'm not, I don't think it's quite so crazy as it was no. but no, I mean it's yeah and the deadlines were like absolutely punishing in retrospect, it was like writing seventy thousand words a month minimum. Yeah. Wow. Um, which, well, yeah, so I still do, but it's in a more, more sensible fashion. Um, <laughs> like I, I, I appreciate the, appreciate the sort of creative freedom I had because they, I basically handed a title a lot of the time and basically said like you know, write like you know, one hundred twenty eight pages on paladins, one hundred pages on druids, hmm. and it was pretty much up to me as to what I wrote which was very liberating mm. um, but I was also fairly madcap <laughs> <laughs> the, then the le, Mongoose was also my first experience of licensed games and mm-hmm. uh, with licensed games it helps a lot if you are a fan of of license or at least have seen it which wasn't always the case. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Can you do that? Can you write for something with when your heart's not in it? Does your heart have to be in it?
3: Does that come through? It depends, but usually it it, cer- it certainly helps, right? Um, I actually think that the, a certain level of distance is also useful. Uh-huh. Like with with Traveller, for example, I was, I, I played Traveller and knew a bit about it, but not a huge amount. When I started doing my Traveller, hmm. so was able to sort of like approach it with a fresh eye but for something like Clarantha where part of the joy for the people who are involved it is basically to to your depth of it they think I mean you need to be immersed in it to write properly for it so like the two Clarantha books I did or three other I wouldn't sort of like at all hold up as my best work because I was not a huge Clarantha head arguably shouldn't have been writing Clarantha or certainly if I if I go back and do it again I would partner with someone who knew Clarantha a lot better than I did Mm. And have them be the expert, and I just sort of provide the mechanics and the story structure. Mm.
1: I mean, to be fair, this is like an argument I have with uh, Glantha Fowls quite often is that from Greg Stafford's point of view, God rest him, um, he wanted everybody's Glantha to be different, and he he wanted people to take. Uh, myths and make them their own or change them or have conflicting views on what a myth actually meant or what really happened and that kind of stuff so I think a true Gloranthan actually just writes whatever they want in the old, in the Greg Stafford <laughs> way not just trying to make you feel better I think, you know I come up against so many people who know all the lore inside and out and have like raging arguments about whether someone's kilt was red or blue and actually I think that the the actual core of, a, of someone who's really into Gloranthan is make stuff up and have fun and <laughs> that's, that's what he wanted
3: from it that's an interesting argument. <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't um, get a lot of traction with it. <laughs> <but. laughs> I'm certainly be very sympathetic towards it. Um, at the same time, online message boards weird everything because the whole sort of online culture is sort of orthogonal to the actual play. Mm. So that like on- online debate will, like, will sort of often focus on very sort of minor aspects and like you know, build up the whole canon aspect of games and. When you're a writer, you don't know if, you don't see how your book is received in play, but you see how it's received online.
1: Sure, mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. and you be sort of careful to avoid writing busy for the loud fans.
1: <laughs> and,
0: and you get to see their opinion before you've even written it. I mean, if, if you're if you're being trotted out before as the designer on Mongoose Traveler yeah. or Traveler Two, yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird to imagine now, but back at the time, that was a pretty big deal, wasn't it? I mean. To take on Traveller and and basically reboot it, that was that was a well, there was a lot of expectation with that and and Traveller had a massive fan base and probably fairly vocal I would have thought. Yes,
3: very much so. And I mean, I was it was weird. I I, I took on I was I, I was a staff writer amongst at the time, so I didn't really have a choice about what was handed to me. <laughs> I was like, yeah. yeah, but I said like, yeah, that that shouldn't be a problem. And then sort of sat down and thought about it, and went, hang on a second, this is like you know a a loved and ancient and, and like still popular game Yeah. what the hell are you yeah. doing but that was easy enough because it was doing a new edition of a game and I always feel that when you're doing a new edition of a really established and still played game mm. it's like being I don't know, is there a custodian in a museum or something or moving into a um, house that's a what, a protected structure, what's the term for like old house oh, like a um, listed building. A listed, listed building, exactly. Yeah. Like you know, you can change like you know, upgrade the central heating or like put in new electrical wiring, but you can't change the exterior structure, you can't like you know
0: mm-hmm.
3: <coughs> you, you, you can't break the beautiful parts of it. And to <laughs> say, it's, it's the same with the role playing game. You can like you know, fiddle with the fiddle with some of the mechanics, but the basic structure, the feel of the campaign has to stay the same. Yeah, it depends um, if
0: you're going to put leopard print wallpaper up inside a Tudor mansion. Because <laughs> <laughs> some people will argue with your decorating style, no matter what you do, no matter how, how much you try and cleave to history.
3: Indeed. <laughs> but at least if you're, you can see the metaphor, do a Tudor mansion, that people will walk around going, ooh, this looks like a Tudor mansion. That's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there <laughs> there you, uh, you can sort of look, look back at history and go, okay, does this look faintly like the old books can I sort of draw yeah, a clear right. line yeah
0: probably leave out the hot tubs <laughs>
3: indeed <laughs> anyway, that, that metaphor
0: got away from us suddenly, I think Yeah, I was... <laughs> that's, that's role playing writing for you though right it's a <laughs> massive
1: extended metaphor that's gone off the edge of a cliff some time ago I was going to add to it but then I'd stop myself you <laughs> could, could just run and run so I've got a slight confession to make in that yeah. I'm not really sure I like gumshoe which, you know, some people will and some people won't, but uh, as the expert on on many great Gumshoe products now, and I I enjoy reading some of them, I enjoy, you know, Terrorist back in the day when that came out, I thought it was a good product. What what sort of advice would you give me in terms of uh, getting a a good view of what's good about it or seeing the real highlights? Is there anything, product or a a style of game you think might really sell it to someone who's not that sure?
3: The core idea of Gumshoe is that the players always get the information and uh, and the GM always has a clear line as to how they get to the next scene of the adventure that's basically the entire system right <laughs> where I think people's interpretation of Gumshoe fall down or falls down is that they think the GM is to, sort of supposed to hand that clear line to the next scene straight to the players mm. which isn't true I mean, it, it, it's not supposed to be a completely linear railroad it's just that it's never a blank wall the players can't get through. Uh, in terms of like pros look at, I mean, I don't think you could have conceived of something like Dracula dossier or Armitage files without having that Gumshoe structure. Because, I mean, Dr- Dracula dossier hands the GM a book of like you know hundred NPCs, locations, uh, and items and groups and says, like, you know, here is a, a heavily animated version of Dracula, off you go. But in each of those NPCs, locations, groups, there are clues and they link to other NPC locations, groups. And it's the... If, if you're trying to do that in a more conventional role-playing system, you'd probably... They, they would either need to be much, much longer and much more explicit, where instead of saying, like, you know, archaeology the players can trace this to like uh, can trace this earn to turkey brackets c page 437 for the like your know, turk <coughs> for the like your know, turkish dig site
1: yeah
3: you could do the same in another role playing game but it would be much longer text you'd have to like you know, say with a successful archaeology rule the players might notice that blah 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 it just Got wouldn't you. be gumshoot really sort of strips away a lot of the verbiage of other games and says here is the here are the information nuggets the players can get gm here's where this information logos will point to. And then in actual play, you, like you, the GM will layer a description back onto that and sure. sort of put flesh back on the bones. Gumshoe is like an x-ray of an, a, 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 an adventure. It just shows you the bones. It's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've never yeah. heard it put that way before.
1: <laughs> so in many ways, to use uh, one of those products for myself, even if I wanted to use another system, that sounds like uh, a useful product anyway, in terms of I've got the like you say, the bones of an adventure and how I choose to dress it up in terms of what roles I want people to make or anything like that, that's up to me. I can pick a system or, or do whatever I want to do with that, but um, it means that the adventures are just useful generally in terms of having lots of different ideas, factions, yeah. NPCs, all that stuff that you say, and they're, and they're all linked in some way.
3: Definitely, yeah. You, you, could, you could apply the Gumshoe sort of philosophy to any role-playing game. It's mm-hmm. just Gumshoe, like, you know, has it all sort of specifically out.
1: So when you're writing it out, do you have to have, like, a spreadsheet or um like a relationship map or something like that or like a choose your own venture chart to kind of pin all these things together uh, Do you just like chuck loads of stuff at the wall and then try and get the red piece of string between them all afterwards
3: I have like, you know, a, a, a chart that I wrote up um, although at the moment I'm doing these um, uh, set of ventures called the Bareilles, the Borellis Connection which is an adventure anthology for Fall Delta Green Right. And Ken Hyatt outlined that I'm writing mostly adventures. And Ken's approach is very much sort of here is all the information ever, <laughs> pick whichever bits you want. And my approach would be more sort of like, you know, traditional gumshoe of here are like you know, the three clues leading to the next scene. Mm. So I'm sort of like you're know, having to pick and choose in the morass of stuff that Ken has handed me, his <laughs> ocean of clues <laughs> method, as he calls it. <laughs> you can drown in oceans. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: Oh, my God. you could drown in an inch of water, the way I run scenarios. <laughs> <laughs> that, t- that takes effort, though. That takes the players being like, you know, so much obtuse. <laughs> <It> <does. laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I'm really interested in the, in the way that Gumshoe presents its adventures. I've been buying published adventures for, like, well, since, since, since forever, to be honest. And I'm, I run published adventures more than I run my own stuff. Mm. And it's, I think Gumshoe has really moved the technology of adventure presentation on quite a bit over the years, I think up, up till Gumshoe, it was uh, an adventure was just presented almost like a, a book to read through, really. But, but now it's something where you, it feels more like a, like a rough guide to Sydney or something like that. You yeah, flip yeah. backwards, forwards, sideways, and it's laid out for you to to follow at a table rather than in a chair. Does yeah, that make sense? I think it does.
3: Uh, it makes sense to me, certainly. I mean, hmm. the, uh, other than a couple of <clears> adventures like the Armitage Files, most Gumshoe adventures you could equally do in other games... Mm. and you could you could also translate most other game adventures into gumshoe quite easily it's a question of like formatting and presentation as opposed to actual story structure
0: yeah 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 yeah. do you think you could take something like keep on the borderlands and represent that in a way that that could be that's good i don't know more accessible (laughs) that's good but that's more accessible at the table I mean, the, the the keyed map has been around forever, hasn't it? And that was the technology yeah. in the seventies, which is
3: still being used. It is. And the, the keyed map is great for cer- for certain types of adventure, but just doesn't work for everything.
0: Hmm.
3: I mean, there, there are basically like you know, only like, four or five ways to represent really an adventure. Mm-hmm. There's like your know, keyed map, hex crawl, scene like scene based, timeline based, mm. and then sort of just general like you. Know, here is a long list of NPCs and locations do what you want here are some suggestions
0: maybe there aren't that many that many ways to present stuff but, uh, and it's got to go into a book as well hasn't it it's got to go into a book with physical pages that you turn and yeah. you have on your lap yeah
3: yeah. and I mean GMs only hold so much information in their minds at any one point uh-huh. that's why I'm sort of fascinated with like, sort of reminders at the table like you know, tokens or cards or whatever just to sort of like you know, offload some of that cognitive load
1: so, have you ever thought of writing a book about writing books if you know what I mean because like a lot of what you're saying tonight and, and from previous things yeah. I've heard and read you've done all sound eminently sensible and really and like it, they just seem like these things that everybody should know and probably does at the back of their mind but just haven't got it written down in an easy to consume format have you thought about doing a this is how you write scenarios or is that putting you out of a job
3: yeah no about, about like 10 years ago at this point I wrote up a how to write scenarios and I, I'll send you a link because it's i the unedited do. document, um, which boiled out how, how to write con scenarios, in me according to my particular idiom. Um, I have given vague thought to doing a sort of like you know a how to structure adventures book
2: out of the but long long talk. to do list.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll just take ten percent. It's fine. Whatever you. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you find writing? Um, Fiction and things like that, because you, you've written bits for even with uh, Shane Avion last week, who had uh, his anthology series, and you wrote one of the one of the bits in that. And you've, you know you've you've done, for example, Second Bram Stoker, as your co-author and, and written an uh, unredacted version of that book. And how how does that all fit in with the rest of your schedule? Uh,
3: well, fiction has sort of taken off for me in the last year and a bit. I've got uh, one novel coming out in January and another one which I'm gonna start editing tomorrow, in fact. For a long time I had sort of a huge block on writing I sort of long form fiction because I was so used to doing role playing games. So I was I'd be really coming up with like you know the worlds and the characters and I'd say, Right, here's the situation. What do you do? Hmm. And yeah. then sort of sit there going, Hmm, I don't have players and I've, <laughs> written, I've written all these characters who are like, you know, have like their own interesting mysteries for the players to discover or will interact with the player characters in interesting ways but none of them are protagonists
0: no protagonists of I course just, yeah you I, just
3: you expect other people to bring those to your antagonists <laughs> indeed <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and it was only when it's sort of like again this is one of these completely obvious when you say it out loud but it took me like literally years to go ah that's my problem I'm just like you know, <laughs> writing role-playing adventures and calling them novels, and that they're really boring and no one wants to read them. And then I sort of cracked okay, so I just write up some player characters and play them. And (laughs) it didn't seem to work.
0: So was your first novel just orcs sitting in a room eating pie, waiting for the door to be kicked in?
3: (laughs) Not quite, but... that's a fairly accurate description of the reading experience <laughs> it's like waiting for Godot with barbarians <laughs> Oh, waiting for Conan oh, that, ha- that has to be done at some point. <laughs> there you go, 10% of that <laughs> oh I'm rapidly losing money in this podcast
1: <laughs> so did you actually get a chance to actually play any games at any point, or are you just like busy writing them and writing novels and other bits of stuff or did you, what did you do for your kind of relaxing time
3: at the moment I'm playing in a Star Wars game I've, I've been playing it for about 6 months now well, it's the first time I've played in quite a while I enjoy running games as well and I, I should like run more of my own stuff but I tend to run like, 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 like someone else's pre, 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 pre-written campaigns or just run stuff off the cuff um, because it's, it's a different set of mental muscles mm. and also got like you know, Two five-year-olds, so the amount of free time available is fairly limited.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. (laughs) have you written anything for Star Wars? God? no. There's there's a license that needs a needs needs a writer.
3: Yeah, I I I, I'm I was never a huge Star Wars fan, uh, Hmm. so I'd be hesitant about jumping in on it. Um, Purely because I know there are people who are huge Star Wars fans. Hmm. It's, It's sort of thing where I would happily like you know. Edit or develop or commits to someone else's adventure, mm-hmm. but I don't feel like I've, I think I have a huge amount to contribute to Star Wars. Right. So right. at this point, I would be hesitant about like I so I, would, I mean if if someone said like Yo know, Gar we'll pay you lots of money to a Star Wars adventure then yeah sure but it's something I would seek out at this point.
1: <laughs> yeah, reluctantly so- take the money. <laughs> 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 yes.
0: When, when you are reading through uh, other people's stuff, whether to run it or or play it or whatever, really, are you able to sort of switch off your professional writing mind and just enjoy it back in the days, like when you were just a fan and you weren't writing, or are you constantly editing what you read?
3: I'm really enthusiastic about the concept of role playing games in general.
0: Hmm. Like
3: I, I, even after all this time, I still haven't lost that sort of. <clears throat> this is cool. This is like you, you can go anywhere. You could do anything they're dungeons yeah. <laughs> I mean I, I, I suspect I would happily play basic d d for a very long time if I had like nothing else to do yeah yeah cool so I mean I, I I'm gonna like, approach something critically and like a- break it down and analyse it but at the same time even given the most like dodgy poorly written bad design thing I'm there going there are cool bits in this it's like you know, yes it's like you know, I wrote with six goblins, but they are goblins goblins are cool i I, I can make goblins cool
0: yeah.
3: yeah well I mean that's the way you have to
0: approach a published yeah. adventure anyway isn't it you 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 kind of have to take the ingredients that the author gives you and mix them up in your own style anyway to yeah. deliver them
3: to your table I mean that's why i it's always writing role playing is is less pressure than writing fiction because it's 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 a collaboration you don't know the person you're collaborating with mm-hmm. you don't know what they like but you can sort of put in the things you like and have enough options that you're pretty sure they'll grab onto one of them like you know
0: yeah.
3: I don't know what this particular GM is good at doing but if I have a combat option an investigative option a role playing option a wacky option and some other random ideas then surely one of these will fit with their style mm. Mm. yeah you know wouldn't
1: you <laughs> <laughs> so, so you mentioned that uh, uh, like well, at an angle, but talk about yeah. collaborating. So, and you briefly mentioned Ken Hyde but obviously there's Robin Laws as well and people yeah. like. What's it like to to sort of collaborate with those guys? Is it it sounded a little bit compartmentalised then when you were talking about in terms of you get chuck loads of ideas, or one person does outline, one person does something else, or like, like how much collaboration is goes on there? And is it is it a pressure when you've got someone else judging your ideas, or does it just help?
3: It depends on the book. I mean, with Dracula, Dossier it was very collaborative where we'd like to go back and forth and redo each other's ideas or sort of re- on to the stuff where like you know he, he'd write something and I'd come up with a variation, he'd polish that up um, with other collaborations it's more sort of a sort of staged approach where basically one person writes it and the next person will come along and edit it and develop it and either fire it back with notes and suggested changes or just sort of push the manuscript on to the, ne- to the next stage um, I mean, most writing is a fairly lonely and isolating occupation. There's a fantastic um, Alan Moore line: like, unlike serial killing, writing is a dangerous and lonely profession. <laughs> 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 Which I always very fond of.
1: <laughs> you relish critical feedback because it means someone's talking to you. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> do you find it enjoyable that rolling process of like developing ideas I mean I probably that's one of my failures if you will that I don't mind getting ideas down on a page and having something cool but once I've written it the kind of the bit where I've got to go back and redo it that's just uh, that feels like work whereas coming up with new ideas feels cool and interesting and something new to do
3: I think the trick the trick I think is is leaving a gap Um, you have to write, write something leave it like fallow for a while and then look at it again with fresh eyes right because like every book I've, I've written at this point goes through a sort of cycle of the initial excitement the sort of like you know less excitement but like you know still enthusiasm for like all the cool ideas and stuff I'm discovering and then there's this trough of despair where it's all awful This is, no one will ever want to read this this is all terrible and useless and after that there's this sort of, like sort of slow slog up a hill of okay this might work but it's still horrible and at this point it's like eating vomit and I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. And then you hit the deadline and it's like it's fine, it's done, it's away from me it's done, fine, be gone, never see this again. And if you go back and edit at that point you're screwed because you hate the book at this point and you just want to be rid of it. (laughs) And if you go back and look at it again it all looks awful but if you wait two months you're going oh I'm a genius, this is great stuff <laughs>
1: I really hope one of your adventures has a trough of despair in it I think <laughs> <laughs> if he doesn't need to write into one of your features
3: <laughs> I will do so <laughs> but yeah, a lot of it is like knowing at this point the psychological tricks to like approach your own manuscripts and your own games
1: yeah mm-hmm.
3: and like, it's always like you're forgetting that you wrote a particular thing Mm. I mean there's there's some books of mine that I I can pick up and go oh that's good I would do I do that
0: (laughs) (laughs) do you still write to please yourself I mean are you your first audience member you think of
3: when I'm writing no I'm generally sort of thinking of some like imagine GM going will, will this be useful to them right okay um but a lot of the themes I or like you know concept I will do will be stuff I will want to get in a game. Like you know, I really want to run a intrigue based city game. I will like you know write an intrigue based city adventure for a like you know a, a version of me who has more free time. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all wish fulfillment, exactly, really. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you're just writing the supplements you're going to play when you retire. <laughs>
3: That's harsh and entirely fair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better about your uh, your computing, co- co- well, career that didn't take off, that, that's kind of what I'm mean into. And I have exactly the same things that you do. Where you look back at code and go, which idiot wrote this? Oh, I did. Oh, okay, <laughs> when you're fixing it late at night, hating it. So uh, there's a lot of analogies with what you mentioned about writing that would have happened in a computer career. So, well,
3: I. Uh- I th- I I think my initial brief array into computing was quite useful, because computer like, w- writing code things you or teaches you to think logically about information flow, hmm. about like you know how to, how, how it's structured and like I mean in some ways, programming is like GMing for a computer for a very very stupid player. <laughs> like you, know, there is an orc. The orc is going to attack you. You can attack, the, you can fight back or run away. I mean, that, that's like, you know, a very, very simple computer code in some ways or a pseudocode. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can have a lot of insights tonight, go. I'm liking all this. <laughs>
1: I'm going to write the book myself. I'm just going to read, listen back to this and transcribe it. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs>
3: Functional games about strength. <laughs> <laughs> Fish GP plays, yeah. <laughs> But like, um like a lot of adventures for example are just exceptional handling. Like, you know, the players will probably go through the door. Mm. But if they don't go through the door, here are six other things they could do or six ways to convince them to go through the door, or hooks that will draw them to the door, or things that happen to look through the door that will still make sure the game is interesting.
1: Mm. That's very true. Yeah. Mm. Wow. That's, that's my day at work tomorrow. i just going to be sat there <laughs> thinking of how I can get works into my or Exception handle come So, So what have you got up next, guy? What's, what's new in your life? What are you going to be writing over the next couple of months?
3: Uh, I'm currently doing, as I said, The Brewerless Connection, which is a, anth- or a campaign of eight adventures for Folded to Green set in the swing 1960s from Leos to Marseille um, I've um, currently in the production pipeline is Solo Ops which is the one-on-one Nightspec Agents game where you're basically playing a solo vampire hunter um, against Dracula and all his minions Sounds dangerous Out of drag meat, I hope I think should be Hideous Creatures, which is the trailer of Cthulhu uh, Mythos Bestiary based on Ken's uh, little PDFs. We've sort of expanded those and added loads of adventure hooks and lovely handouts. The Moria adventure for One Ring is still slowly being worked on. <laughs> for sure. Is it at the
1: trough of despair now? Is that what we're saying? <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, but like any One Ring thing takes all the time and Moria doubly so. You're The other bit in where Gimli is describing the glittering caves of Glorond, yeah, and yeah. he like you said so like you we'd like you open these up like you like a, t- a, t- a tap a year, like you <laughs> <laughs> tending these flowering gardens of living stone. It's kind of like that only with spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> and what else? Um, I'm working on the paranoia computer game. Um, nice. Doing dialogue for that. Which is always amusing because you have like you know, very serious meetings about vending machines,
1: <laughs>
3: and uh, this whole novel thing is happening next month, which is a very strange experience. Because uh, basically, the real the real publishing industry is a lot bigger and has more people, more people in it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's exponential. I think, isn't it? It really is.
0: What's the novel called? You might as well tell us what it's going to be. And, oh, yes. and then uh, people can look it up.
3: It's called The Gutter Prayer. It's out from uh, Orbit Books. And it's a sort of fantasy, alchemy, steampunk crime heist. And it, 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 it should be of interest to gamers, or to gamers, because it's full of monsters. And it, it, it did basically start off as a, <laughs> a campaign setting and has mutated into a novel.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
3: Does it have three to six
0: protagonists in it? <laughs> who are all balanced? <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> cool,
3: <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, certainly you've got, you've got three relatively equal level protagonists. You've got the GM's character who starts off being a bit more high level and cooler, but then gets killed off. Nice. <laughs> and you've got the player who joins the campaign halfway through, isn't really sure what she's doing, then the GM sits handing her plot hooks and suddenly she's basically running the whole show and direct actually pay attention to the plot, unlike the other the other three players who are just running around stabbing things. Uh, she takes notes. <laughs> exactly. That that is the character in a nutshell. And now I'm slightly terrified that I still have parts of my subconscious playing a D and D game and that's my Method for writing fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Too late now. <laughs> yes, this conversation is full of insights for all concerned, isn't it? <laughs> it
0: is. yeah. Like a self-help book. wake up tomorrow and the world will look completely different. I don't know if we <laughs> failed ten checks or made them.
1: <laughs> oh, there's the whole insane, insane insights thing. <laughs> exactly.
3: Exactly.
1: Cool. And if people want to find you, or hunt you down. You're gonna be a dragon meat, oh yeah. And uh... I'll
3: be a dragon meat on the pelligrin stand. Uh, I'm on Twitter as uh, Mytholder, which is a word no one can spell, but it's Googleable. And I've had the same handle for like you know twenty something years this point, so I'm not changing it. <laughs> hmm. Very fair, quite right. That's right. I can include it in the show
1: notes. People will find you that way. Well, it's been great to speak to you, Gar. Thanks very much for yep. coming on. It's been lovely. Cheers,
0: mate.
2: You can get in touch with The Smart Party by your favourite electronic means. Look us up on the forums, where we're just about everywhere, or you can simply email us at thesmartparty@hotmail.com. Your comments, insights, questions and revelations are always welcome. More diplomacy!